0: Good morning. Gosh, did I have my new glasses last time? I have now these progressive lenses. It's it's terrible. I can see one row of you at a time. Jump right into Hafiz this morning because this poem is just beautiful. I've read it before, as all things, but it's lovely. Venus just asked me, perhaps, perhaps for just one minute out of the day, it may be of value to torture yourself with thoughts like, I should be doing a hell of a lot more with my life than I am because I'm so damn talented. But remember, for just one minute out of the day, with all the rest of your time, it would be best to try looking upon yourself more as God does, for he knows your true royal nature. God is never confused and can see only himself in you. My dear, Venus just leaned down and asked me to tell you a secret to confess She's just a mirror who has been stealing your light and your music for centuries. She knows, as does Hafiz, that you are the sole heir to the king. In you know, a spiritual life, really, as I like <laughs> barrel more and more into it, uh, really just, is, it, it comes down to such a simple thing such a straightforward thing that just is impossible to remember. Something impossible for some reason to keep it on our minds. And uh, that's, that's Maya, you know, that's <laughs> the situation that we're in. And uh, there's a couple of things to remember that we can just hold on to, because the ride gets pretty wild sometimes, gets pretty crazy sometimes. And uh, it's easy to lose our bearing on things. Those things that are most important, you know, once again, we'll go through those. Because they really do hold the crux of this whole puzzle together. It's easy to get caught up in the philosophies of it and, uh, you know, the ideas of Advaita and watching it all collapse into a singularity. And then you still find yourself sitting there doing the dishes and you're wondering, (laughs) so, (laughs) does it matter? In the long run, it's love. In the long run, that is the most important thing to focus on. You can forget about all the rest, all the paths, all the mantras, all of this, all of that. Love. Love is the one most important thing, to love each other, to love God, and to be known for that love. That love has to conquer all of the fears that you've got inside, your, your fears of expressing it, your fears of being vulnerable, your fears of, of being weak, your, which I guess is vulnerable but your fears of just not opening up, those things that protect us, those things that, that cover us up, the armors that we walk around with. We have to be men and women of vulnerability, men and women of love, men and women of giving and caring. And uh, to do that, we have to really open our eyes to the opportunities. You know, I hate so much the mother gives me and <laughs> talks to me, about these things in front of everybody. These are the things that we need that I need to work on, that we need to work on, is opening up like that. The second is very much like it, that inner integrity, that truth that Takor said was so important that he couldn't throw away. That inner integrity, that you're a person who says, who thinks, and who does the same things. That you're not a you're not a person of complicity. That's what guilelessness is. You know, when you sit there and don't run a sentence through the through the censor uh, two or three times before you say it, where you're not in a conversation and somebody's talking and you've only heard three words and the rest of the time you're trying to think of what you're going to say in re- in reply, you know, which I find myself doing all the time, and that's not communication. <laughs> you know, you hear enough of their sentence to kind of put your reply together and then you're sort of just sitting there waiting for them to finish so that you can put your thing out there. You know, but to be men and women of no complicity, not, not that calculating mind like that. To be spontaneous and quick in our, in our suggestion of love and our feeling of love, our display of love uh, with others. And uh, these these factors in life are what we have to keep coming back to again and again and again. In this world of Maya, in the Shvetashvatara Upanishad, it says, know the nature of this Maya, uh, know nature to be Maya, and the ruler of this Maya is the Lord himself. This notion of Maya, you know, from what I was reading this week, it started out in the beginning as just an idea of just illusion. It was almost aborted, the, the, the Buddhists really took it and ran to the, to the, to the field of idealism with it. Uh, where the outside world doesn't exist at all. And uh, that's a beautiful contemplation. (laughs) It's a wonderful meditation to sit and think about. uh, Because it is fundamentally true. I I don't know what it means. I don't know how it changes anything. Because here we are, right? In the dream, we're in the dream. But in this concept of Maya that everything is an illusion, it, it, it really draws upon that idea that this is a dream, that there's no reality out there. There's no inward, there's no outward There is only the dreamer and your experience of your own self here. And that you know, we've we've gone over some exercises that you can do to feel that or understand that, just this notion of of the fact that you've never been touched, you've never been spoken to, you've you've never seen anything. That the mind is just getting all of those signals through the nerves and then creating this world spontaneously because it's a black box organism or organ. It just sits in the cranium. It's never seen light. It's never been touched. It's never been kissed. It's never been hugged. There, there is no direct experience for it. It's all interpreted. And so that drives you kind of crazy because you've only got five inputs going in there, your five different senses. And the mind itself has to decide where those things are coming from. So it, it says, oh, that's coming from the hand. Well, it made the whole concept of hand up, and now it's assigning input from that hand. You know, so it's, you really, you, you could go crazy, actually, quite easily, thinking along those lines, because it's true. There's no way to verify that we're all experiencing the same things in the same ways, you know, that we just, we just match words up, and what the other person is seeing or what they're experiencing, they've assigned to that word also, but it could be completely different. And uh, so initially this was the idea of maya. Now, Ramakrishna's idea, or Vivekananda, I guess, he talks more about this, this uh, projection system where there is something out, out there, there is something going on. It's not, you can't project onto nothing, you know, whether it's mind or whatever it is. And Thakur says pure mind is Brahman. So there's this substratum to the universe, uh, which is kind of the background to everything, which we never see. It's like when you go to the movies and you watch a movie, you never walk out thinking about the white screen that displayed the whole thing to you you 're wrapped up in all the flashing colors and moving images and whatnot, and that white screen just completely disappears from your from your consciousness but it's nice to know that that screen is there because the nature of that screen is love, and that's a very important thing when when thinking in these higher terms of Advaita or or, or uh, you know maya and, and unreality and the upsum, ups, unsubstantiality of things because if you don't have that love behind it if you don't have love as the identifying feature of it it becomes dark and it becomes pessimistic very quickly uh, it becomes unable to to inspire and so always remember you know these ideas of dispassion these ideas of pulling back these ideas of not engaging they're all designed to let love flow they're not meant to shut you down as a person. They're meant to open you up as a person. So that love manifests. So that ananda becomes the apparent thing in your life, in your being, in your character. There's a great uh, discussion with Sri Nishagadatta with one of his disciples. The, he, the questioner says to him, Here I am sitting in front of you. What part of it is imagination, Maharaj? The whole of it. Even space and time are imagined. Questioner, does it mean that I don't exist? Maharaj, well, I too do not exist. All existence is imaginary. Is being too imaginary? Pure being, filling all and beyond all, is not existence which is limited. All limitation is imaginary. Only the unlimited is real. When you look at me, what do you see? I see you imagining yourself to be. There are many like me, and yet each is different. Maharaj, the totality of all projections is what is called Mahamaya, the great illusion. Questioner, but when you look at yourself, what do you see? Maharaj, it depends on how I look. When I look through the mind, I see numberless people. When I look beyond the mind, I see the witness. Beyond the witness, there is that infinite intensity and silence. Well, how do you deal with people, then? Maharaj, why make plans on what to do? Such questions show anxiety. Relationship is a living thing. Be at peace with your inner self, and you will be at peace with everybody. Realize that you are not the master of what happens. You cannot control the future, except in purely technical matters. Human relationship cannot be planned. It is too rich, too varied. Just the understanding and compassionate, just be understanding and compassionate, free of all self seeking. Surely I am not the master of what happens. I, I'm rather its slave, says the questioner. Maharaj, be neither master nor slave, stand aloof. Does that imply the avoidance of action? You cannot avoid action. It happens like everything else. So he's saying there that, yeah, this world is an imagination. It is unreal. You know, that that you are an imagining. Anything with a limit is unreal. Only this limitless limitless expanse of satchitananda, this incomprehensible thing, is real. But what does he say in the midst of that? Just be compassionate and understanding. Just love. Because there's this one idea that the reason that this Maya forms around you is because you put yourself in the center of it. And by requiring yourself to be the center of your universe, all of this becomes distorted because you're not the center. You know, you're not the center of the universe, but you're the center of all of your perceptions and all of your plans and all of your pains and all of your thinkings and all of your contrivances. It's got you at the center. And so to explain the, 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 the revolution of the stars with you being at the center is a very confusing thing to do. To explain, to explain the happenings of the world from, from a you-centric position is a very different, very odd thing to do. And so Maya comes into being. Maya, this, this, this storyline, this narrative that supports the idea that yes, you are the very center of everything. You know, you're an American, so we're gonna get American news tonight. You know, you're a woman, so you're going to get concerned about these issues tonight. You're old, and so you're going to get worried about these issues tonight, you know. So this whole definition of what you think you are really does affect everything around you. And you can get caught up in that. You can get very philosophical about that. It can go very high, and you can talk for days about these things and sound brilliantly smart. But the bottom line is, are you unselfish? Are you loving? In the midst of all this uncertainty can you cling to the divine? Can you cling to love? Can you make sense of this world by making other people the center of it? And slowly you begin to see that, whoa, (laughs) if I just make others the center, that gives multiple centers. And you come closer to the divine. You come closer to seeing God. And you become like Takor, where there was no center in himself at all. Then there's only love. That's what so many of his disciples wrote about him. Oh, you can't imagine the love that we felt in his company. You can't imagine. Think how. Think about it. I mean, in this world today, how hard it is to find even one person wanting to renounce the world and then to have that one person actually stick around and go all the way through is another thing. Takor had 16 of <laughs> these men that he inspired. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be around him? that virtually, virtually all the young men that spent any time with him, and a lot of the women too, renounced. They walked away from everything. They walked away from their families. They walked away from their schooling. They walked away from their dreams. They walked away from their careers. Walked away from it all just to find, just to touch what this man had in the midst of this unreal world, this make-believe existence. So you cannot avoid action. You cannot avoid being part of this world. That's why it doesn't count a whole lot to know that or to talk about it being unreal until it becomes unreal. It's like that snake and that rope. You can talk about that snake being unreal all you want, but until you muster enough courage to put both feet on the ground and walk over to it and give it a little push, it doesn't matter. You're gonna be sitting there screaming in the corner for someone to come remove it <laughs> or to take it away. So you've got to muster that initial courage. And in this sense, that courage is going to drive you to change the center of your thinking, to change the center of your world. In this this rope scenario, we'll go to it here. According to the Advaita Vedanta, error rises on account of the superimposition of one reality on another. Adi Shankara defines Hadyasa as the apparent presentation to consciousness by way of memory of something previously observed in some other thing. Hatyasa is the illusory appearance in another place of an object seen earlier elsewhere. It is similar in nature to recollection. For instance, on seeing a rope in a dim light and not recognizing it as a rope, a person mistakes it for a snake which he has seen elsewhere. So this is that idea of that superimposition of another reality on a current reality. And I'm going to go back and grab that theme of putting ourselves at the center the center of this reality is God, right? His center is everywhere and his radius is infinite. Isn't that how they explain God? <laughs> that his center is everywhere and his radius is infinite. So God is, God is the center. You know, love, love is the central idea of this creation. And so by taking your own notion of yourself as the center and imposing that on love, imposing that on, on, on God, suddenly you don't see so clearly. Because when God is the center, all you see being expressed is love everywhere all the time. Everything can be interpreted as love because you're seeing both sides of the coin. You're understanding completely the processes and projections of the people involved and how what is happening is, in all of its twisted, crazy reality, only an expression of love in its bizarre ways. But it only looks bizarre when we take our own interpretation and impose it because it goes back to that original problem you don't know what's out there you have no way no idea what's going on you know the, think of the number of thoughts that privately go through your head in just one minute and how much they have to do with what you actually say and what you actually do now think that's going on and i'm assuming that's going on in every head in this room and how much of it are we actually aware of in each other and yet we talk about knowing each other oh yes that's my friend this projection is not, is not a philosophical idea. It's real. What you do is take what you know of yourself and overlay it on everybody else. To the degree that you understand them and get them, to the degree that they're like you, they're your friend. To the degree that you're constantly having to adjust that overlay and you know, twist it sideways and sort of keep making room for it, to that, to that extent, they're not your friend. You know, in an extreme senses, they may seem like an enemy because their interests are very different. But it's because you're trying to put yourself over them. You're trying to project onto them and to come up with who they are and what they are. With God at the center, that stops. You know that he's everywhere. You're looking within yourself and you're finding that inspiration of love. You're looking within yourself and you're finding that nature of peace. And that's what you begin to assume about everybody else. That's why Thakur, when he met other people, he was always seeing the very highest ideal in them. He was always seeing the most beautiful in all of them. And so he became a lover of mankind. Why? Because he knew what was shining through them. He knew what was in them. But the difficulty of seeing that, do you know this story of Maya with Narada and Lord Krishna? When they're walking along, it's a wonderful story. I'm going to read the whole thing here. Narada Muni asked Lord Krishna, My dear Krishna, can you please show me the power of your maya? <laughs> Don't ever pray for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's our hint number one. Don't do it. Can you show me the power of your illusory energy? Please explain to me the secret of this magic called maya and how it she acts. Sri Krishna hesitated to do it. So Krishna asked his dear devotee, My dear Narada, are you sure you want to see the power of my maya? Narada was very determined, so he said, Yes, Krishna, I'm sure. I want to see the power of your maya. The Lord Krishna replied, Okay, Narada, I'll show you. Let's lie down here in the shade, and I shall tell you everything. But first, Narada, it's terribly hot. Won't you please go and get me a cool glass of water right away? Finally, Narada reached the village and ran to the nearest house. The door opened, and there stood the most beautiful girl he had ever seen. Mm -hmm. She smiled up at Narada through long, dark ashes, and something happened to him that had never happened before. All he could do was look at her, her beautiful face. Finally, he spoke out, "'Will you marry me?' (laughs) 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 That is the Indian way. You cannot just say, "'What are you doing on Saturday night?' So the couple settled down to a life of family bliss. And after a while, children began to arrive. Narada's became very animated household. Somebody was always being bathed or dressed. There was meals to get and people to be provided for. And all these things were filling up their lives. Narada and his wife became engrossed in their private little world, quietly building their dreams. Years passed. The children grew up, went to school, got married. In time, grandchildren arrived. Narda became the patriarch of a great family, respected by the whole village. His land stretched to the horizon. He and his wife would look at each other fondly and say, Don't you think being grandparents is the grandest thing on earth? Mm-hmm. Then the flood came. The village fields became a raging river, and before Narda's helpless eyes, everything he had loved and lived for, his lands, his cattle, his house, but especially his beloved wife and all their children and grandchildren were swept away. Of all the village, only he remained. He was trying to save them from all this calamity, but was unsuccessful. Unable to watch the destruction, Narada fell to his knees, cried for help from the very depths of his heart. Krishna, my Krishna. At once, the raging flood disappeared. There was Sri Krishna standing casually on the fields where they had walked what seemed to be so many years before. Narada, the Lord asked gently where's my glass of water? (laughs) It's a wonderful story in a lot of different ways. One, it shows you how absolutely relative everything is, you know, that all those years passed and yet they didn't, just that moment passed. And all of that story to show what? To show maya. But what is maya? What is the essence of that maya? Forgetting to get the Lord his glass of water. If he had only stayed focused. <laughs> if he had only remembered to ask the young girl for a cup of water and not for her hand in marriage. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he could have gotten that glass of water and returned to his business and been like, okay, show me, show me. And the Lord would have been puzzled. Oh, my. <laughs> this is the power of Maya, just forgetfulness. There's no other power here. Maya doesn't have any other supernatural powers when you're sitting there in the depths of your temptation to talk about it in those terms and you're fighting you know, your selfishness or whatever it is, it's not selfishness that you're fighting. You know, it's, not, it's not jealousy that you're fighting. It's not anger that you're fighting. It's forgetfulness that you're fighting. You're trying in the midst of the storm to remember what you are. I am that infinite, ever-pure, blissful self the mind is angry i have no anger the mind is jealous i have no jealousy you're trying just simply to remember the lord and to serve him to give him that glass of water to not be carried away in the flood of all of these other things all of these other ideas and what is that forget the 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 pill of forgetfulness as it were it's me and mine putting you at the center you know Krishna, that he was no longer on that walk with Krishna. Krishna was no longer the center of his experience. He'd gone away and suddenly he became the center of his experience. And that became a whirlpool of desires, of likes and dislikes, of attractions and repulsions, of bliss and terrible tragedy. All of these things only because of me and mine. Because he attached those things to this world. But we live in this cloud of unknowing. Assuming, we talk about this quite a bit, this assuming that we know so much. Here's some wonderful science news on Maya. you ready for this? This is from Mike McCray from Science Alert magazine. Time is weird. In spite of what we think, the universe doesn't have a master clock to run by, making it possible for us to experience time differently depending on how we're moving or how much gravity is pulling on us. Now physicists have combined two grand theories of physics to conclude that not only is time not universally consistent, any clock we use to measure it will blur the flow of time in its surrounding space. (laughs) All right. So this thing that we think is obvious, that all of us are measuring with these little devices around the room... Time is not consistent, is what science says, that it flows at different speeds and it goes at different rates for each one of us depending on conditions. That's not something we normally assume, right? (laughs) Not something we normally think about. Edward Frankel in the New York Times says, he says, this is that double split uh, experiment. Have any of you heard of it? Anyway, I'll share it here. It's fascinating. As an armchair physicist, I can't answer any questions on it. So just hear what what the article says here. Shoot electrons at a screen. Okay, that's that's what they're doing actually on those old tube screens, shooting electrons at a screen. So shoot electrons at a screen. In front of the screen, we place a partial obstruction, a wall that has two thin parallel vertical slits in it. We look at the resulting pattern of of electrons on the screen. What do we see? If the electrons were like little pellets, which is what classical physics would have us believe, then each of them would go through one slit or the other, and we would see a pattern of two distinct lumps on the screen, one lump behind each slit. But in fact, we observe something entirely different, an interference pattern, as if the two waves are colliding and creating ripples. Astonishingly, this happens even if we shoot the electrons one by one, meaning that each electron somehow acts like a wave interfering with itself, as if it is simultaneously passing through both slits at once. So an an electron is a wave and not a particle? Not so fast. For if we place devices at the slits that tag the electrons according to which slit they go through, thus allowing us to know their whereabouts, there is no interference pattern. Instead, we see two lumps on the screen, as if the electrons, suddenly aware of being observed, decide to act like little pellets. To test their commitment to being particles, we can tag them as they pass through the slits, but then, using another device, erase the tags before they hit the screen. If we do that, the electrons go back to their wave like behavior, and the interference pattern miraculously appears. (laughs) Did you get it? I didn't either. But what I think is happening <laughs> is you're shooting these electrons through these two slits in the screen. And if you're not measuring them, you're not obs- you're just uh, observing the final effect, it seems that they don't go through as particles, that they go through as waves. And that on the screen, you get an interference pattern at, like you do in water, like you tap two dots in a water, those interference patterns cross over. So you get that kind of image on the screen. But if you actually tag them so they're identifiable as they go through the hole, you'll get bullet holes. You know, they act like little particles, so you'll get bullet holes. But then if you don't watch, then if you take off the measuring component on the other side, they go back to being waves. So you watching is changing how these electrons behave. That unless they're watched, they don't choose one or the other slit. They go through both slits as a wave. And then, and then have an interference pattern. But if you watch, they become a pellet and decide which one they're going to go through ahead of time. But then if you stop watching, they go back to going through both of them, even in reverse. <laughs> you know, So like even though they've already gone through the slit and you've already measured them, if you take the measuring away, they will still go through both slits, even though they've already gone through one. Get it? Crazy. <laughs> Fun stuff. That's why I like being around with these days of of, uh, of these physics, because in the old days, if you were a spiritual guy and you were talking to a scientist, it was totally material, black and white. You're stupid, we know. <laughs> you know? It was that way. Nowadays, when you sit and talk to a scientist, it takes greater faith to believe what they're saying than it does what to say what you're saying. <laughs> like You're telling me... <laughs> You know, because this quantum physics material, wow, they're having to do thought experiments because they're realizing that the observer is, has a large part. Of it. They say that the underlying—they have a in the New York Times, they have an article on this where the underlying substratum of this universe is like a black gooey film. They said that has no shape or form until it's observed. As soon as it's observed, it takes its form and its shape. And in this pool of black universal goo. Time travels both forwards and backwards simultaneously, making sure that everything is in alignment according to the observations being made. That's science. <laughs> That's not Brahman. <laughs> you know, they're not talking about the universal you know, I, which has become all these things. So we've got these ideas going on everywhere, and yet we can't find our place in it, and so we make one up. Vivekananda, he lists like five things of Maya here, five little scenarios. I'm going to hit them one at a time. Thus we go from one extreme to another, buffeted by nature without knowing where we are going. They are all going to death, and yet this tremendous clinging to life exists. Somehow we do not know why. We cling to life. We cannot give it up. This is Maya. This idea of, of this small existence. To take you know it's just like that that show did you ever see uh, let's let 's make a deal where you know you hope you pick a curtain door one, door two, or door three, and door three they you pick it, they pull the curtain and it 's a donkey, and then you get to either keep the donkey or you can have what 's in the box you know so then you have to make the decision well, if you got the donkey, you probably go for the box, right so you go to the box and you get this well it's the exact same kind of thing going on in this world, you know. We've all pretty much got a donkey, (laughs) right? We've we've all got this life going on. We're like, yeah, well, all right. It's going. It's okay. But we're here because we want what's in the box, (laughs) right? We want to know, no, I'd rather know my true nature. I'd rather be able to pop into bliss at any moment, you know, pop out again. I'd rather be able to love everyone with economist hearts and, and, uh, you know, be lost in that knowledge. But instead, we take the donkey, (laughs) <laughs> you know, we're like no. At least I know this set of attributes. I know this set of limitations of mind. So we can't let go. You know we can't let go. That's why when we think of dying, or when we think of uh, you know, when Thakur had his ex- that that wonderful experience where he said he saw the whole universe as this, this ocean of light consciousness, and that in this ocean were these giant waves of bliss he says violent waves of bliss like they were tumultuous waves of bliss and they said they came rushing at him and the last thing he said before he went into samadhi he said they threatened to dismantle my very sense of i you know now if you meditate on that for a while this notion of losing your sense of i that's quite a terrifying notion can you fathom that feeling and how deeply we're grasping onto that sense of I. You know, It's delusion, it's maya, it twists everything we see and everything we experience into dualities which we get battered back and forth in. But We can't let go. We're not willing to have a world where I'm not the center. We're not willing to live a life that doesn't put me in charge of everything in it. You know, that, that's lived for somebody else or for the sake of others. It's a very a very daunting and very difficult place. This is Maya. The mother is nursing a child with great care. All of her soul, her life is in that child. The child grows, becomes a man, and perchance becomes a blackguard or a brute. He kicks her and beats her every day, and yet the mother clings to that child, and when her reason awakes, she covers it up with the idea of love. She little thinks that it is not love, that it is something which has gotten hold of her nerves, which she cannot shake off. However she may try, she cannot shake off the bondage she is in. This is Maya. That holding on, you know, for for dear life to our attachments and the amount of pain that we suffer for them. And yet we still cling. We still can't let go. We're all going after that golden fleece. Every one of us thinks that this will be his. His. Every reasonable man sees that his chance is perhaps one in twenty millions, and yet everyone struggles for it. This is Maya. So Maya is the lottery. <laughs> you know, you get one in three hundred thirty million chance of winning, and yet you're, this could be me. <laughs> it could be me. Well, certainly, it could be. <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> this is Maya. Death is stalking you day and night over this earth of ours, but at the same time we think we shall live eternally. A question was once asked of King Yudhishthira, what is the most wonderful thing on this earth? And the king replied, every day people are dying around us, and yet men think that they will never die. And this is Maya. There's no notion of, it's incomprehensible, unless you think about it a lot. And the scriptures, as morbid as it seems, and, And Vivekananda admits that it's morbid up front. The scriptures say death should be your constant companion. Nachiketa says that death is the greatest teacher, that it will will teach you a lot to envision your own death. It will definitely teach you about what's important. It will definitely teach you about what you can hold on to and what you can't hold on to. And he gives you a clue. He says only your virtues pass through that final gate with you. (laughs) Nothing else that you've collected. So use this idea. Become aware of your mortality. Because in being aware of your mortality is the key to being loving and unselfish. Because your mortality will help you see that this this small self is non-existent. Here for a breath. But your acts of love will outlast you for eons. Look at Jesus and Buddha. Animals are living upon plants men upon animals, and worst of all, upon one another, the strong upon the weak. This is going on everywhere, and this is Maya. What solution do you find for this? We hear every day many explanations and are told that in the long run all will be good. Taking it for granted that this is possible, why should there be this diabolical way of doing good? Why cannot good be done through good instead of through these diabolical methods? The descendants of the human beings of today will be happy, But why must there be all this suffering now? This is no solution. This is Maya. (laughs) So this constant promise, oh, it will get better. It will get better. It's the dog's curly tail, you know, the dog's curly tail. We make our efforts. It's part of riding the bicycle, you know. One pedals up, one pedals down. But round and round it goes to ride the bicycle. So in this life, as long as we put ourselves in the center, we have to ride the bike, pedal, This is Maya, and you'll cling to it and hold on to it no matter what, (laughs) not letting go. But we're here this morning because all religions more or less attempt to get beyond nature. The crudest or the most developed, expressed through mythology or symbology, stories of gods, angels, or demons, or through stories of saints or seers, great men or prophets, or through the abstractions of philosophy, all have that one object all are trying to go beyond these limitations. In one word, they are all struggling toward freedom. So our way out is freedom. Our way out is to let that impetus of what you are be expressed in the moment, free from inhibition, free from all the calculating reasons of why it shouldn't, or why it can't, or what it would mean, or what you would look like, or what they would think. To let all of that go and to be spontaneously pure, spontaneously free. Again, I remembered the words of Neil Gallagher. You can't say you're not free to say yes to something until you're free to say no. That freedom doesn't mean being able to follow your senses. Because unless you can be content saying no to your senses, you're not free to say yes to them. You're being led around by the nose. And that's that separation that, that happens with these with these ideas, is you come to understand that you're separate from the mind. You're separate from the body. And then you begin to understand why these sages are saying you're slaves. You're like, I'm not a slave. You're trying to make me a slave. I have to do everything you say. Because that's how it looks when you think you're a body and mind. When you think this is what you are, doing what it wants seems like the normal, the normal day. Like, oh yeah, of course, I'm doing what I want. I'm living the life that I want. But really, is this exactly what you wanted? I remember when I turned 45, You know, that's that magic time. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's behind me quite a bit. When I realized that I probably had more years behind me than in front of me, that's a weird realization. That's a like once in a lifetime thing <laughs> where, where you're on the seesaw and suddenly it tilts the other way and you're like, whoa, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I don't wanna see this. And then you look around up until I was 45, life was so much. What am I going to be? What am I going to do? You know I'm going to be a fireman, I'm going to be a policeman, I'm going to be a vet, I'm going to be you know a doctor all these things all things are about, oh, this grand future that somehow someday you're going to establish you know with, that's going to make you happy and you know the Disneyland ending of life. And the really hard thing is is when you get to 45 and that thing tilts and you're going the other way and you're looking around, and you're like wow, this is probably it. <laughs> this, this is my Disneyland castle. <laughs> you know. This is it. And that's, that's a wonderful place to come to because it's not ever going to be enough. It's not ever going to be your real projection of what you were hoping for because you're infinite. You're beautiful far beyond your ability to express it. You're loving far beyond what your senses can allow you to, to show. So matter no matter what you've done, no matter what you've accomplished by that magical age when you come to realize you're more than halfway, it's never gonna be enough. And there's a delight in that. If you were only the body and mind and that's all you had come to understand, then it's a terribly depressing time. It's a time where that balding chubby guy goes out and buys that little Miata sports car, you know, and <laughs> goes driving around, you know hanging out the window like he's twenty two again that second that second childhood that we go through, you know you desire I'm divorcing, dumping all these old people and going out and being young again. you can't do these things you can't do that because it has nothing to do with body and mind, it has nothing to do with accomplishment, no matter what you accomplish, it will never be enough, otherwise but Ooh, who just passed $100 billion this year, this this week, from Black Friday? Amazon's Bezos, Jeff Bezos. He's now worth more than $100 billion. Go home. Take the night off, Jeff. <laughs> quit. There's not much more you can accomplish in the material world than earning $100 billion. Is it enough? Is he going to quit? Is he going to take off? Is Amazon going to... Shut down tomorrow. <laughs> Where would we be? No, this thing is, you see, it's never going to be enough. If it's not enough for him, if $100 billion isn't enough for him to stay home from work today, it ain't going to be enough for you to stay home from work today either. I learned something very interesting about myself, and I'm assuming, I'm projecting it on all of you, but I watched through the different periods of my life before I joined the monastery. You spend in, in percentages. You spend in percentages. So you never have more money than you've ever had before. <laughs> you're always broke. If, 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 you, if you were broke in college, you're going to be broke when you're prof- in a professional scene. And if you're broke when you're not married and, and uh, you know, going home with your paycheck, you're going to be broke after you get two paychecks and you're married because you spend in percentages. You know I noticed this. like When I was in college, if I wanted to go out and have fun, we'd go to the park because I didn't have any money. We'd go to the park and play ball. Well, as soon as I had money, I'd go out to a restaurant. And as soon as I had more money, I went out to a nicer restaurant and then had a movie, you know. And after I made even more money than that, I'd have everybody over to my house, and we'd have a great big, you know, dinner together. But you spend what you make, and you always spend to the same degree that you've always spent. So if you're a person who's always broke, you're always broke. It doesn't matter whether you're making billions. You know, I heard something like, I'm going to have to grab numbers out of the air, but it was more than half of all professional uh, ball players are go bankrupt within the first ten years of their retirement. I mean, these are guys bringing home <laughs> tens of millions of dollars. If you're if you're if you're always poor, you're always going to be poor, because it's it's not what you have; it's your it's your perception of the world around you. We do things in percentages according to character. If you give away five dollars out of your sixty thousand dollar paycheck now. You give the same percentage away when you're making a hundred billion dollars. You know, so this notion of like, well, if I made a hundred million, I'd give ninety million away, I can live on ten million. That's not true. You would give the same percentage away that you give now. That's the way this world is. It's a relative world. That's why nothing is discernible here. There is no greater and lesser if you don't have somewhere that you're measuring from. And where you're measuring from is always arbitrary. Chances are it always Is right here. You know, he's better looking. He's wealthier. She's poorer. You know, I'm more popular. I've got bigger muscles. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, they've all moved. (laughs) But uh, this whole notion of your this relative world only has meaning when it meets you. That's Maya. That's Maya. To have two people standing there get the exact same news. Oh. Tim Johnson is dead. One of them is completely unperturbed, the other one breaks down in tears. Exact same circumstance. But one had me and mine. Tim Johnson, or whatever name I said, was his best friend. There was me and mine there, so he suffers. The other person had no me and mine involved, so there was no suffering. Now you can argue there was no love either for the one who didn't know him. That's true. And that's what Vivekananda says. Equal measures of pain and pleasure in this world, you'll never get more of one than the other. It will always come to you in equal measure—two sides of the coin—and it will always be measured from where you are. You know, back in—I uh, don't remember what year that was—there were those big Rodney King uh, things going on, the the riots, and in San Francisco, we. <laughs> this is such a classist thing for me to say, but I'll say it anyway. That we had this thing going on in San Francisco, big riots going on downtown. And I lived down in that area at that time. And they totally smashed in the front doors of the Radio Shack and stole all the Radio Shack equipment. But right around the corner from Radio Shack was Bang & Olufsen. Okay, that's like the top tier in electronics. I mean, these are the spaceships of stereos, you know, where you approach them and glass-smoked doors open and, you know, the... CD player folds down for you to put. It's that kind of equipment. They didn't even break in the glass doors of that place. You see, you see, because somebody living in the, that stratum of poverty, to them the highest ideal is Radio Shack. That's where they saw their electronics. That's where they could shop, where they could afford things. So when their opportunity to break in goes, they go to Radio Shack. They grab, the, you know, grab RCA off the shelf. Meanwhile, around the corner... You know, they could take one of those stereos and buy the rest of Radio Shack. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, but they didn't even break into that store. And I thought at the time, even, I wasn't a spiritual guy, but I was thinking, now, how is that <laughs> how is that possible? Why do you loot Radio Shack and not touch the B&O, B&O store? How do you not do that? And that's where I kind of understood. It's like, oh, well, see, it's the stratum within which you live, you know. I thought that I knew what wealth was until I went for, in San Francisco, uh, the temple there is in a very wealthy neighborhood and you have this idea of wealth as somebody just having a lot of money, right? We, you just think, Oh yeah, a lot of money. So that's what rich is being like. We were going to have a brass railing made for our shrine. And there was an artisan guy across the street who had just put in a three story single mold or single cast iron railing for this wealthy guy over there. And so he invited me to come over and look at that railing. Um, and he took me into this house. Now this house was owned by one of the original investors in Google. He only lived there for two weeks a year whenever Google had their big thing in town. In this house, just to get the idea of relativity, he had hand-painted wallpaper. He had hired a painter and artist that spent over a year painting, hand-painting the wallpaper in his house and it was done in patterns, just like normal wallpaper was. But as you went from room to room, the transition was seamless through the door into the new pattern. It's so like everything. It's so like a whole year. He had he had a, a, a countertop in the kitchen that went around the kitchen wall and then came out in a big island with a big circle on the end of it, made of glass, one piece of glass that was four inches thick. You know, <laughs> This giant thing. And it broke on the first installation. They had to go and pour it again. So it was hand-poured. $380,000 for that thing. The, sh- the, cur- the I say these things just for relativity, just for the fun of it, too, actually. But the, the, that railing that he made, first of all, I mentioned it was three stories high, right? Single cast. Do you know how big that casting material had to be to, to cast a, a, a bronze railing three stories high? They had this, he had this handmade silk carpet on it of a bouquet of flowers, That was a million bucks just for the carpet on his stairs. So I walked through I saw this. He he had two daughters, seven and eight years old. They had a whole floor to themselves. They had a bathroom that was probably a third the size of this room. And the wall had like 40 different buttons on it because there was like 25 shower nozzles coming out of the wall in all different directions. (laughs) And then they had this giant copper bathtub that looked like a big salad bowl, you know, sitting there in the middle of the room. Anyway, for seven and eight-year-old girls... And in their, in their rooms, their study desks, you know, they had that, that Louis Fourteenth. everything had curves and flowers and whatnot, but it was made of crystal. You could see through their desk. You could see through their desk. That's what they did their homework on. I'm like, okay, all right, maybe I didn't understand rich. <laughs> maybe I didn't know exactly how much money this, this world has. But you see that. You see, here's a guy, huge amounts of money, if he just bought his daughter an Ikea desk, think of how much money he would have saved. You know, if he'd just given them a, a toilet and a shower stall, think of how much money he would have saved, what, what he could have done with that money. But you see, that's what happens in this world. That's why if you think you give away only $5 now, that's why you're only going to give away the same amount at that point, because you're going to start spending huge amounts on things that you never spent huge amounts on before. You know? You won't go to the park and play, you know, horseshoes. (laughs) You'll rent the park for a weekend and invite all your friends and pay for their plane fare, you know. So this is the notion of Maya. This Maya is everywhere, and it is terrible. Yet we have to work through it. The man who says that he will work when the world has become all good and then he will enjoy his bliss is as likely to succeed as the man who sits beside the Ganga and says, I will ford the river when it has all run into the ocean. The way is not with Maya, but against it. This is another fact to learn. We are not born as helpers of, ni- of nature, but competitors with nature. We are its bondmasters, but we bind ourselves down. Why is this house here? Nature did not build it. Nature says, go and live in the forest. Man says, I will build a house and fight with nature, and so he does. The whole history of humanity is a continuous fight against the so-called laws of nature, and man gains in the end. Coming to the internal world, there, too, is the same fight going on. This fight between the animal man and the spiritual man, between light and dark. And here, too, man becomes victorious. He, as it were, cuts his way out of nature to freedom. We see, then, that beyond this Maya, the Vedantic philosophers find something which is not bound by Maya. And if we can get there, we shall not be bound by Maya. This idea is in the same form or other the common property of all religion. But with the Vedanta, it is only the beginning of religion and not the end. The idea of a personal god, the ruler and creator of the universe, as he has been styled, the ruler of Maya or nature, is not the end of these Vedantic ideas. It is only the beginning. The idea grows and grows until the Vedantist finds that he who he thought was standing outside is he himself and is in reality within. He is the one who is free, but who through limitation thought he was bound. So it's our duty to fight, to not give in to this lower nature, this idea of a small self. It's our duty to be free, our duty to love, our duty to grow and to give and to give and give. And when it starts to hurt to give more, Because it's not until it hurts that you're actually practicing love. (laughs) It's not until there's sacrifice that love is actually being manifested. Sacrifice yourself. Dare not to be the center of your own world. Dare to live for somebody else. For your family, for your friends, for their friends. For your workers, co-workers. Take the challenge and push against the limits of Maya. Let yourself be free. Let yourself be the person you've always wanted to be, so that when you turn 45 and there's more behind you than in front, it's a shrug-of-the-shoulder situation. It's always just an opportunity to serve, as the Peace Pilgrim said. Live that life of service. Break the bonds that have convinced you that you're small and temporary. Hold on to your true nature and be inspired. Be free. Let's take a few moments to think of these things.